Christmas presents you got for her. I hope your favorite football team won. I hope Santa Claus came down the chimney for you. A couple of you told me you still believed in Santa Claus. Hope it all worked out for you. We're glad that you're here. You know, in the first semester of our study, we, we've been looking at wisdom literature in the Old Testament, namely Proverbs, which is full of fantastic advice for us in our daily lives. And we saw how practical it is. It concerns our workplace, it concerns our relationships with wives and children. It concerns the management of our own emotions. It concerns money management. It concerns um, friendships that we make, everything. Uh, and God has given us wisdom ultimately, of course, in Jesus Christ, as we saw at the end of the semester, right before Christmas. And we were taught much of this wisdom from the earliest days of our youth. We can probably remember, those of us who grew up in church, we can probably remember many of these proverbs from when we were in nursery school. Uh, and we grew up with them, and we still live by them. And uh, we have found that they are very helpful in our lives. You know, train up a child in the way he shall go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. And we found that's true. You rear children up in the way of the Lord, and when they're old, sometimes a little older than we wish, uh, they'll come back, and they won't part from it. And we found in the Proverbs, it's true that if you hang around with people who are wise people, you're bound to have wisdom yourself. And we found this true. If you work hard, uh, especially in the economy that we've grown up in, uh, you're going to be okay financially. And then we found from the Proverbs, if you just entrust your way to the Lord, uh, that He will make your path straight. He will give you success and so on. But then as you live a little older and a little longer and uh, you find life more complicated, you find out some things that just really completely stump you. And I think back of my own experience with guys uh, just observing their lives and uh, thinking of a man who has outstanding integrity and he, he went bankrupt. He was just completely ashamed of what happened in his life. I, I know a man who was very hardworking, uh, capable person, and he got fired. There seemed no cause whatsoever for it. I, I know a man who seemed to be one of the most gentle and godly parents I know. In fact, I'd, I would have wanted him for my own father. And his children abandoned the faith. And I know another man I'm thinking of who, who seemed in every way to be a faithful husband, providing for his wife and family. And she just up and leaves him with no apparent cause. We find those kinds of things happening. You start to scratch your head and you say, does, does religion work? <laughs> you know, does the Bible work? And uh, it doesn't take a long time. And certainly the older you get, you can pile up these experiences that you've had where the Bible doesn't seem to work, at least on the surface of it, in every case. It seems like it's working in some people's lives and religion really helps them. The Bible really helps them. And maybe you could even say, well, it works most of the time with me. But boy, then there are exceptions. Well, what the Bible does for us in, in other literature besides Proverbs is show us that, that all of life is not lived by proverbial wisdom. All of life is not explained by proverbial wisdom. That there is a more complex wisdom. It's called reflexive wisdom or reflective wisdom where we 
understand that, that we don't know everything, and everything doesn't work out by moral formula. You know, we were taught by some of us by our mothers that just like God made a natural universe with natural laws that order the planets and so on, well, he made a moral universe, and it works by moral laws. And then we found out sometimes gravity doesn't work. Sometimes the moral laws don't seem to work. And we need a deeper wisdom and understanding. And the book of Job is probably the most famous book in all the world, in all of history, to address those complexities. And it addresses it in a way that really brings us back to God in a deeper way than we ever would have known him before. And, of course, what we'll find out is that these troubles that we face in life are really meant and designed for us to know God more deeply than we ever knew him before. And that's exactly what happens in Job. If you'll turn there, it starts on page 752 in your, in your Bibles. We'll begin study today. We'll take several, times, uh, several weeks to work through this great book. Uh, this book is what Thomas Carlyle called the greatest book ever written. Uh, I suppose if you take that comment theologically, you'd have to say, well, it's part of the greatest set of books ever compiled. They're all uh, inspired by God, these 66 books that are in our Bible. But just from a literary point of view, Thomas Carlyle was saying, this has got to be the greatest gem that's ever been given to humankind. And he says that because uh, certainly the topic that's being dealt with is one of the most relevant topics that we as human beings deal with, and that is how do we make sense out of our sufferings? But the way in which it's presented is really extraordinary. If you look at your handouts, you see that brief outline of Job. And what we'll have in the uh, first couple of chapters is uh, Job being tested. And in those two chapters, we're going to see not only that Job is tested, but we're going to have the curtain pulled back and we'll get to see a little bit of the drama that's taking place in heaven because Job's problem and your problem and my problem is we can't see heaven. We only see the problems that are going on in front of us. We only see the cancer that we have. We only see the bereavement that we're facing. We only see the job that we lost. We, we only see the human drama. We can't see the divine drama. And part of what Job is doing is pulling back the curtain so that our wisdom is deeper than just observing moral law at the human level. We are let in on something. It's the divine drama that's going on behind the scenes. That's what Job was not aware of. But the reader here is made aware of it in these first two scenes. And this is ingenious. So we're able to watch Job and listen to him. And Job is ourselves. But we're able to look at him and uh, see how he's dealing with all this because he hasn't had the curtain pulled back. We see what's happening. We know what God is doing. He shows his hand to us. Job doesn't know. So we're observing Job, and then we find out, well, Job is the, Job's reacting the way we do. Because when we're in the midst of our struggles, we forget what we were told in Job. And we're only looking at the human element, and we, we forget the divine drama that's going on. And this, what this story is doing is reminding us of the divine drama that's behind all of our suffering, which then, of course, changes everything about the way that we see our sufferings and the way in which suffering uh, affects our lives. And so in, those, in the prose prologue, in the first two chapters, we get the drama, the human drama and the divine drama, both. 
Then when you start with the poetic dialogue from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 42, verse 6, it's all poetic dialogue, you get some fascinating series of discussions. First of all, in chapter 3, Job lets out his lament. He's just in misery. So would we be if we had his circumstances. And he's just crying out with all of his pain, just lets his pain be known. Then, from chapters 4 to 27, we, we will see, and we're going to deal with that all in one lump. <laughs> That'll be the, the most uh, the number of chapters ever covered in Amen on one Thursday morning. <laughs> chapters 4 through 27. Uh, there are three rounds of dialogue between Job and his friends. And we'll look at his friends actually in chapter 2 to begin with. But then his, and his friends do great in chapter 2, and then they, they open their mouths, uh, unfortunately, in chapter 4. Uh, <clears throat> but when they open their mouths, they, they begin with their argument. And this is one line of human reasoning, which is to say, Job, everybody knows that God is just. And if you've got problems, I mean, we know who the problem is. It's not God, it's you. So the simple thing for you to do, Job, is just confess your sins and let's be done with it. We'll get it over with. This is the reason all these problems have happened to you. And, and they're giving him that line of theology that you often hear in Christian churches. Uh, in fact, you often hear it in the health and wealth gospel. It's, it's basically a version of the health and wealth gospel. That if you just believe, if you just obey, God will give you this cargo of, of goods and it'll all be fine. And that's the message they're delivering. Job, on the other hand, in, in, in these dialogues, he's going to respond differently. He's going to say, hey, look, uh, I know that God punishes sinners and so on, but really, I haven't done anything that I can put my fingers on. I haven't done anything wrong that's worthy of this kind of response from God. It's a complete mystery. I don't understand it. So Job defends himself against his friends who are trying to say, hey, look, all you need to do is confess, Job. Just come up, just confess your sin. But he's saying, I don't have anything to confess. So these two guys are going at each other. And what we'll see in these three, uh, this uh, series of three dialogues, the intensity grows and grows. The climax builds. They get angrier and angrier at each other. <laughs> and, I mean, it's funny because we know the outcome. <laughs> but... You see us when we get into trial, how we argue and fuss and fume. And, and it, it looks like church to me, to tell you the truth. Uh, where, you know, we're looking at somebody else, something bad's happened to them, say, okay, confess your sins. And the other guy's defending himself. It, it really is just like church. <laughs> then you get to, to uh, Job's discourse on wisdom. This is C and his final defense. And there, especially in chapter 28, we'll see this, this lovely conclusion. It has a lot of wisdom in it beautiful conclusion of Job when he just finally lays out his final argument in a very elegant way. And then this guy, Elihu, who's a little younger, a little smarter than everybody else, comes in and he's, he, he thinks he's really got something to contribute. And uh, we're going to take all that at one time, uh, chapters 32 and 37, and look at, at Elihu. And once again, this sounds an awful lot like church to me too. He comes in, tries to nail, put the nail on the coffin. And, and then when we get to chapter 38, after the tension has built between Job and his three friends, Elihu builds the tension even more. And then all of a sudden, God talks. Finally, God opens his mouth. And in chapters 38 through 42, 6, what you see there are two major addresses that God gives 
and we'll see Job's response to it. And these two addresses also grow in their intensity. We'll see that the second one thunders even louder than the first one. And uh, we'll get to it here in a few weeks, but we'll see that God finally brings resolution to this whole problem. And Job responds, and then you'll see in the prose epilogue, beginning with uh, chapter 42, verse 7, and going through the end of that chapter, that Job is restored, and everything is back in its place. But what a whirlwind. What a whirlwind he's been in. And it's a whirlwind of suffering, and it's a whirlwind of confusion and anger and conflict with his friends. Total chaos. And only when God speaks does the peace come. And uh, so that's what we want. Uh, what we find is that proverbial wisdom is necessary to live a godly life and a useful life, but in and of itself, it's not adequate. It's not sufficient. You need proverbial wisdom and you need reflective wisdom that takes care of these inexplicable cases. So let's dive in. We're going to look at Job chapter 1, which really kind of gives to us what happens. It'll give to us the first round of what happens. Job uh, actually gives it to us in two chapters. There's a first test and a second test. But let's look at the first test. We'll see what's happening on earth, what's happening on heaven, in heaven, and we'll be able to, to learn, I think, some of the most important lessons in life this morning from this text. I have to say, Job 1 is one of the most useful chapters in the Bible uh, in an everyday way for me, in my personal life, in the life of brothers and sisters that I, I would love to help in any way. I find Job 1 extraordinarily helpful. Let's take a look at it, God's Word. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, and thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has 
is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead." And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Okay, the first five verses, let's please notice that bad things do happen to God's people. Bad things do happen to God's people. There is not a silver bullet, a magic formula that will guard you in every way, necessarily, from bad things. When you give your life to Christ, sometimes all that means is you just get in more trouble. There is a deep joy in your heart that was not there before, couldn't have been there before, because now you're reconciled with God. There are promises that you know in the end everything's going to work out well, and we'll see that's true here. But There's no promise that you're not going through all sorts of travail, and there's no promise that actually your travail won't get worse. And sometimes it does. I've watched men who've given their lives to Christ, and sometimes at the very beginning of their lives, they'll find all kinds of difficult things happening because they're Christians. So we see that here, that bad things do happen to God's people, and the Bible teaches us that clearly so that we won't be shocked nor dismayed nor surprised. And Jesus was clear to warn his disciples of the persecutions that were coming to them. He said, I'll provide for you. I'll give you words to speak. I'll give you courage and perseverance. And, of course, at the end, I'll give you the glory. But uh, he warned them very carefully of the trouble they were getting into. But in this case, this doesn't seem to be because Job is a Christian, and at least humanly speaking, it doesn't seem that it's because he's a believer. Uh, It just seems to be completely inexplicable. We are told that this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. If you look at this man, um, on the one hand, he seems to be the Billy Graham of his whole region. On the other hand, he seems to be the Donald Trump. <laughs> he's, he's those two combined. He is the most righteous man, and he is the wealthiest, wealthiest man. We're told that he's blameless and upright, and we're told he's the greatest man, which is another word for rich. So this man was enormously wealthy, and he was blameless morally. So he, he was 
well, the greatest man in the East of his day. Now, what's interesting about this, I want us to, to notice other attempts in, um, in second millennium B.C. That would be from 1,000 to 2,000 B.C. Of other attempts, <coughs> other religious attempts to explain this phenomenon. Everybody tries to explain this phenomenon. Uh, every religion tries to explain it. And I've mentioned just here three samples of uh, writings that are extant that, that we have today that were written during this period. For example, a Sumerian poem, Man and His God, probably written toward the beginning of the second millennium B.C. And uh, here uh, it's a man in relationship to his gods and he works very hard to find pardon from his God, and the God is finally satisfied and drives away the tormenting demons, and then he receives worship uh, from his grateful uh, devotee. Uh, you have, but what you don't have there is this full sovereignty of God, one God who has control over all things, and this God is able to be manipulated. If the, if the servant will just worship enough, if he will just uh, give enough, sacrifice enough, finally the God will be satisfied. So you see a very different theology than what you're going to see in Job. But it was an attempt, and it's a typical attempt. You can see how that's very human. That's the way we at react. If you just work a little harder, work your way through it, uh, the gods are displeased with you for some reason, just trying to find some way to satisfy them. They're unpredictable, but just somehow try to satisfy the gods or work harder. That was one attempt, 2000 B.C., then around 1500 B.C., we have something that, that some scholars have called the Babylonian Job. It's uh, in English, I will praise the Lord of wisdom. And here, uh, this is about Marduk, uh, a famous god. And uh, the man has sickness demons. And after the sickness demons are banished, uh, the writer praises Marduk. Now, in Job... Uh, on the other hand, there is no doubt as to whether men can know any of heaven's moral standards and the sufferer's afflictions are the result of his religious lapse, unlike Job, who was a righteous sufferer. So once again, in the Babylonian Job, so to speak, there was a clear violation on the part of the, of the sinner that explained the problem he was in. Job deals with a case where there's no explanation, humanly speaking. Where'd this come from? All these troubles. Can't explain it. So Job actually takes on a much more difficult case than the one in the Babylonian Job. Then you have a Babylonian theodicy, and we'll talk about that word theodicy in just a moment. A poem, 27, uh, 11 line stanzas, probably written around the time of Solomon, 1000 B.C. And here you have a righteous sufferer. But this righteous sufferer finally just gives up on God and just chucks it all. And basically, we would say, in our language, he just says, to hell with God. I'm through with him. Uh, and basically vindicates himself by overthrowing his God. Well, we know Job is very different from that. Uh, so that, that is, those are the best pieces of literature that you can come up with, the best words of wisdom in the period of Job. And some folks, you know, will look back and see extra-biblical literature and say, oh, well, now we see where the Bible got it. Well, it wasn't inspired by God. They just got, took it from their 
literature that was available to them. Look at the similarities. Well, <clears throat> there are similarities, but the thing to be noticed are the dissimilarities, and that's the reason for Job being written, is there's a new message here. There's a distinctive, there's a unique message that's being given about the meaning of suffering and how we respond to it from, from a godly perspective. And that's what we're going to find out here is that, that Job is given to us because bad things have to be explained that are happening to God's people. Uh, bad things that are really bad, as we'll see. Now, secondly, when you come to verses 6 through 12, the second thing that's obvious here is that bad things are happening only if God permits it. In fact, you see from the text, God's the one who suggested Job's name in the first place. <laughs> I can just, you know, once Job finds out about this mystery, he's saying, you did that, God? <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> you told Satan about me? God says, have you considered my... You know, Satan says, I've been roaming everywhere around the world just trying to find out where I can wreak some havoc. And God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? <laughs> you know, thanks a lot. And, but what you see here is that God is in charge of all things, including the evil that's being perpetrated on the earth. That's what's being shown us here from behind the scenes. This is not out of God's hands. People want to defend God. When it comes to bad things. Oh, God had nothing to do with that. That was just a pure accident. Where God's involved is helping us recover from our accident. Where God's involved is helping us get over our cancer. Where God's involved is healing our bereavement after the terrible thing happened. When God is involved, it's bringing us recovery from our financial disaster. But God had nothing to do with the disaster itself. Wrong. Now, I know I'm complicating the problem of explaining God and justifying evil. And that's exactly what Job does. Job says, let's, let's get the real problem in front of us. The problem is not why is there evil. The problem is why does God allow evil? And uh, let's, get, let's complicate this problem by showing that God is sovereignly in control of evil. Now let's explain it. Very good. So that's the reason that Job is not only, in a literary sense, the greatest uh, book, perhaps, but it's a great book because of its theological content. And then you see in the text, Satan raises an objection. He says, well, you tell me to consider Job, but how am I going to make any progress with Job when you've, you've given him everything? You've pampered him. Does, God, does, does Job fear God for nothing? You think that Job fears you without all these things you gave him? So you see now there's a second drama or a second theological issue that's being raised. The first one is, how do we explain evil in the world? The second one is, is there such a thing as a disinterested worshiper? Is there such a thing as someone who worships God for his own sake? And Satan is challenging God and suggesting there is no such person. Does Job fear God for nothing? God takes uh, Satan up on his challenge. This is what's happening behind the curtain that Job doesn't know anything about. There's a, there's a dialogue in heaven. God takes him up on it and says, okay, you've challenged the divine court. The court accepts your challenge. 
You can get at Job any way you want to, except for his soul. If you look in the text, he says in verse 12, very well then, everything he has in your hands, but on the nephesh, the soul, do not lay a finger. Here it says the man himself. But the word is nephesh, which means the man's soul. So on his soul, you cannot lay a finger. So Satan, do with his body, do with his possessions, whatever you wish. But on his soul, you cannot touch him. We just sang a song a moment ago. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not uh, desert. I can't remember. Obviously, I forgot the poetry. but uh, <clears throat> I will not desert to his foes. Thank you. Uh, so he's saying that it's the soul that I will, uh, I will refine and take all the dross out of the soul. Uh, but Satan will not be given any access to that. So, gentlemen, when people talk about folks being possessed who are Christians, it's impossible. When you become a believer in Christ, he possesses you, and he doesn't share his property with anybody. So he has your soul. Your body is the material part of you that's in a broken, fallen world that's falling down around us, and it is subject to all kinds of, of woes. And God has his purposes in allowing your body and your material possessions to go through different time, types of trials because he's protecting your soul from the evil one. And the Lord said to Peter, Satan is trying to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you, Peter. And you look what happens to Peter. Yeah, he, he falls terribly. Moral failure. Worst kind of moral failure. Denying Jesus Christ in public. And then look what happens. He's restored. Why? Because Satan cannot destroy Peter. It's not because of Peter that Satan can't destroy Peter. I'll guarantee you that. Peter is bad enough to destroy himself. But it's because of the Lord who is praying for Peter. And when you become a follower of Jesus, he is praying for you. He is sovereignly protecting you. And he is giving orders to the devil so that the devil cannot destroy you. And that's the reason that you persevere in the faith. It's not because you're so smart. It's not because you know the Bible. It's not because your grandmother taught you so well. It's because you have an intercessor who's praying for you and guarding your soul. And that's what's happening here. And Job, of course, understands this later. He doesn't know it in the moment. He's just all confused. He thinks everything's up for grabs. He doesn't know that God's preserved his soul, and he doesn't know about this first drama, which is a drama between God and the devil. Now, this is called a theodicy. You saw that word earlier in the text. Here's what a theodicy is. A theodicy, theos, is the Greek word for God. Dici, D-I-C-Y, comes from the Greek word uh, dikia, uh, D-I-K-I-A, which means Righteousness or justification. So it's the justification of God. That's what a theodicy is. And specifically, it is how do we justify evil in the face of God's existence. So it's justifying, usually a theodicy is specifically explaining evil, vindicating God's justice. How do you defend God? Justifying God, theodicy. Now, what Job presents us are three possible theodicies, how this could be explained. First of all, God is powerful 
but he is not good. And Job, the book of Job turns this back out of hand. Neither Job's, Job himself nor Job's friends are arguing that God is not good, but there are some that do. In fact, although I don't think there would be any Muslim who would say that the Quran teaches that God is not good, you do have the idea of shrewdness in, in the Quran with respect to God. And that uh, God in his shrewdness will do certain things even with human beings, and he has a perfect right to do it. You don't find that concept in the Bible at all. God is wise, but he's not shrewd in the sense that he would take advantage of somebody or to their disadvantage, uh, advancing his own cause. You have this idea of goodness in God. And so there would be a contrast even between Allah and God. And certainly the pagan gods would be a version of the gods that are not necessarily good. Uh, they, are, they can be manipulated. Uh, they can be angry and vicious. They can be capricious. But they're not necessarily good. But in Job's testimony, you don't have any sense that that's a possibility. The second possibility is that God is good, but he's not powerful. That's the second possibility. And frankly, I think that's the most popular one of our day, outside the church and inside the church. I hear all kinds of theodicies within the church, defenses of God's sovereign behavior, trying to explain God's uh, how God can be vindicated in the presence of evil, they go just like I was saying a moment ago. God had nothing to do with that accident. That was an accident. That's chance. Chance caused that accident, not God. So we get God off the hook by that theodicy, that he's good, he's just not, he doesn't control everything. And in fact, uh, you know, the famous book that was written about 15 years ago, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, by Rabbi Kushner, Harold Kushner. And uh, that became very popular among Christians as well. And I remember reading a Christian uh, ethicist who uh, said at one point, you know, there are times when you just need to forgive God uh, because God doesn't, he doesn't control everything. He leaves some things just to man's free will. That's a theodicy. It's not God's fault, it's yours. You were the one with free will, and you chose these things, and that led to your bad things. That's an attempt to explain evil. It's just a bad attempt. doesn't work because you, now you don't have a sovereign God. And Job, Job, the whole problem in Job is because he will not accept that theodicy, that God's in charge of some things, and he's handed some things over to men, and you know he'll clean up the mess, but you can't blame him for the mess. Job rejects that theodicy out of hand. It's not even considered. The starting point is God's sovereignty. Both Job and his advisors both believe that God is in charge of everything, including evil. So whatever theodicy you have, you have to move to this third one. God is good and God is powerful. That's where the mystery is. Let's solve the mystery as it is. You have a mystery, no matter which way you try to solve this thing. Why don't we try to solve it according to the biblical statements about who God is? He is good, and He is powerful. 
Now let's walk through what I would call the biblical theodicy. And this sounds a little abstract, a little philosophical. We're using fancy words. Try that one on your, your workmates when you, get, when you go off. Have you ever heard of uh, theodicy? <laughs> Let me explain it to you. We're using, we're using words that are probably too big for me, but let me, let me continue to use the word for just a, mo- a moment here because I believe that we, we need to frame up our theodicy because, as you see with Job, Job didn't have it all figured out. He didn't have it framed up, and that's what was adding to his misery. He was completely confused in chaos. And when you face your sufferings like today, you want to be sure you've got it framed up. You don't know everything. You don't know what God is doing in every case, but you know some things. And let's be sure to nail down what we know. Now, here's what we know. First of all, human suffering comes from a fallen world that we call natural evil. We suffer because we live in a suffering world. The whole world is fallen. And you pick that up, of course, right in Genesis 2 and 3, in particular, Genesis 3. Uh, so our suffering is coming out of a broken world. We would, we would expect to suffer. But now notice, secondly, our fallen world comes from human moral rebellion. So in other words, there's not just natural evil, there is personal human evil that was the cause for the fallen world in the first place. So, of course, our, our brokenness comes out of a broken world, but guess whose fault it is that we live in a broken world? Because of our own human rebellion. Now, Genesis 3 makes that very clear. The curse, the curse from God comes upon the whole world because Adam and Eve, our father and mother, sinned against the Lord and broke the moral commandments. The third thing in the, in the biblical theodicy is that human sin comes from a personal tempter or an adversary, Satan. So, all right, we have a broken world, and behind that we have human sin, and behind that, pull back the curtain a little bit more, ah, there's the devil. The devil made me do it. That's exactly what Adam said. Or Adam actually said she made me do it, didn't he? And she said, he made me do it. So Adam was pointing to Eve and Eve was pointing to the devil. That was the first pass the buck routine right there in Genesis chapter 3. So the devil was behind it. He tempted them. There's a personal devil. There's an adversary uh, of human beings and of God himself. Now, where did this tempter come from? The tempter is allowed by divine decree. So we know that We don't know exactly where Satan came from. We can presume maybe that he was a fallen angel. He seemed to have had status before he sinned. But why did he sin in the first place? And where did that sin come from? All we know is that it came by God's decree. Now, the reason I say that is, especially in your Old Testament, there are some very explicit statements about this. For example, if you look in Isaiah uh, 45, and this would be uh, page 1155, 1154, excuse me. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 7. And look what God here says about the disasters that are coming upon the Israelites. He says, I form the light and create darkness. Fine, good, we all believe that. 
I bring prosperity. We believe that. Praise God. And create rach in Hebrew. Disaster. Or rach is the word for evil. Bad things. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, you have to hold, at the same time, you have to hold the statement of Habakkuk in chapter 1 when he says, uh, the Lord says through Habakkuk, uh, the Lord uh, cannot uh, look upon evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. The Lord is pure light. There is no shadow of turning in Him. There is no darkness whatsoever in His being. This is a mystery. But when it comes to who's in charge of the planet, including rach, disasters, chaos, bad things, God in His perfection is also in charge. He did not create evil, but He did seem to allow it in some way. And He certainly orders it. Once it's in the universe, he orders it. How it came into the universe, gentlemen, we don't know, and nobody does. My theology professor told me 30 years ago that it is necessary that we not know where evil came from, that it be completely irrational, because evil is irrational. It makes no sense to rebel against a sovereign God who in their right mind would choose one tree over all the trees in the palace garden when that tree is going to destroy them. It's toxic. It's completely irrational. Who can explain that? Nobody. And so evil is irrational. We do not know where it came from. The Calvinist doesn't know where it came from and the Arminian doesn't know where it came from. The pagan doesn't know where it came from and the Christian doesn't know where it came from. Leave mysteries as mysteries. We do not know, and the Bible doesn't explain it. So the Bible doesn't attempt to explain everything. It only tells us some things. And what we know is that God is perfect, perfectly good. In Him there is no evil, and He completely controls all evil. That's what we know, and it is a mystery. Look at a few, a couple of books later in Lamentations. Look in Lamentations chapter 3. And here this follows, if you remember, Lamentations was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. And Je- Jeremiah is lamenting the great rach, the great disaster, the great chaos in Jerusalem. This had to be the lowest moment in Israel's history. Not one stone is left upon another. Women have been raped and pillaged. Children have been murdered. It's, 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 it's a, the worst day ever. And here's Jeremiah. What does he have to say about all of it? In Lamentations chapter 3, he says, verse 37, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? This is page 1298. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come. Why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Let us examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. So he's saying in here in verse 37, 38, that God decrees both. He decrees calamities 
and he decrees good things. And uh, Psalm 135, verse 6 I've listed there, just simply tells us that, that God does whatever he pleases. So what you have here is clearly an illustration of God's sovereignty over all evil. Now, let me give you the worst case scenario. What, what if we have in the Bible a record of the worst act of human injustice that ever occurred in all of human history? And what if we have it explained for us? Wouldn't that be helpful? So that if something's happening to you that's unjust, you can say, well, I can explain what's happening to me because I can look at the worst case scenario and I see that that one's already being explained. So certainly the, the truths that apply to that worst case would apply to me. Well, we happen to have that. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, this is page 1758, 1757. Look at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.22, page 1757. Peter says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So here it is. He was accredited as God's son through his life and ministry. So you should have known who he was. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. His set purpose and foreknowledge. It was God's intent. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So both things happen. Human beings are responsible for that evil. And God purposed it in his divine decree. Go over to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 18, if you think this is just an isolated instance. In verse 17, he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. So it was predicted. He decreed it from all eternity. He predicted it in time in the prophets. Turn over another chapter, chapter 4, verse 28. Verse 27, he says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is a prayer. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did it. They performed the dastardly deed, but you had decided beforehand that it was to happen. Gentlemen, back to Job 1. If you have any question about God being in charge of your disasters, uh, have we relieved you of your confusion this morning? From Old Testament and New Testament alike, from the experiences of Israel and the experience of Jesus and the early disciples. The tempter is allowed by divine decree. Now, the, 
Fifth principle of biblical theodicy is the decree fulfills God's purposes to glorify himself. God does have an overall purpose. He is magnifying his own being before the whole universe. This is a heavenly drama. Job does not curse God. Amidst his total disaster, he, he, he says, Though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust him. And God is magnified. And as the first line in uh, the book uh, by... Um, what's his name? Um, I'm so glad I can't remember his name. It just reminds us that we're all morals. Uh, uh, the, the book about purpose in life, the purpose-driven life. Rick Warren. Uh, sorry, Rick. Uh, the first line in the book is not about you. It's not about you. It's about the Lord's glory. It's all about his glory. And lastly, God's glory ultimately then eliminates all our suffering and evil. There's the irony. It's all about him, but we eventually end up with all the goods <laughs> because it is about his glory and he glorifies himself in us. So we are eventually vindicated. God is certainly vindicated, but we're also vindicated, as we'll see in Job. And you see that at the end of the Bible in Revelation 19 through 22. Now we'll have to move quickly. The third concept is that bad things can be very bad. And you see these four messengers, and for some reason the book of Job loves the number four. But there are four messengers here, and they come, you know, your animals are destroyed, fire fell on all of them, the sword killed the rest of the servants, and then your children are destroyed. I mean, just disaster upon disaster. It just takes all the life out of you just to read the story. How can one man endure so much and... Honestly, I've had times when I've asked the same question. Bad things can be very bad. But lastly, and I'm sorry we're moving so fast, but we've got to, bad things produce good things in God's people. And we see this when we come to Job's response. God decrees evil in a permissive way. He, does not, he is not the first cause of evil, and that is a mystery. How can he decree something that he doesn't cause? I do not know. The Bible does not explain it. All we know, those two things are true. He is not responsible for evil. He is not immoral. On the other hand, he's in complete charge of it. And we can see that eventually, through his decree, we end up victorious. That doesn't, I'm not trying to justify evil. I'm just saying that's what happens. We end up victorious. You see that in Job's story. You'll see it in our story at the end of Revelation after all of our suffering. And you'll see it in Job's response. First of all, we acknowledge our pain. And you see that clearly with Job when Job gets up and tears his robe and shaves his head. He, takes, he does all the things that a Near Easterner does when bad things happen to him. And Christians are not immune to the pain of suffering. And we express our pain. And when we don't, worse things happen. We need to express our pain. We need to be ministers to each other to allow people to express their pain to us. And sometimes, as we'll see with Job's friends, the best thing they ever did was listen. And we'll talk about that here in a couple of weeks. We need to be able to express our pain. And sometimes I feel like we're more like Stoics than we are Christians. Christians are not Stoics. We express ourselves. You see, Job expresses himself, non-verbally as well as verbally. Secondly, Job worships God. 
And we must learn how to worship God in our lament. He falls to the ground and worships. And what does he do? First of all, he acknowledges his dependence. And we must completely acknowledge our dependence. Naked I came into this world and naked I will depart. Jesus came into this world naked and he went out of this world naked. You came in naked and you'll have some clothes on in the grave, but brothers, it ain't going to help you any. You're going out without any possessions. And if you've piled up a whole bunch of stuff, you ain't taking it with you. You're going out of here without anything, anything at all. Naked you come in, naked you're out of here. And Job is first of all saying, I'm completely dependent upon the Lord. And you'll notice he says, the Lord doesn't owe me anything. And the big mistake people make when they say you need to forgive God, that is not only bad theology, it's blasphemy. The word forgive means to cancel a debt. And if you think you need to forgive God, you think he's indebted to you. He owes, let me tell you what he owes you, nothing. And all he owes you is justice. And if we got what we deserve, if we got what he owed us, we'd all be a piece of dirt long ago. So naked I came in this world, naked I'll leave. You owe me nothing. And then he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. So now he's acknowledging the Lord's sovereignty. He's acknowledging his complete dependence upon the Lord, and he's acknowledging the Lord's sovereignty. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord gives you money, and he takes it away. The Lord gives you a wife, he takes her away. The Lord gives you health, he takes it away. The Lord gives you a job, he takes it away. He is completely sovereign on the giving and the taking. And he has a purpose in both. And it is not just the Lord when it feels good to you. And that is the reason that we have that kind of a theodicy. It's not God's fault when bad things happen because you know what? We're God's. And we'll determine what's good. And what is good is what feels good to me. And that's what I'll ascribe to God. And so I'll create a God who is good based on my definition of my own comfort and convenience. But here is what Job is saying. That is not the definition of good. What I have or don't have. The definition of good is God. His being and His character. And the Lord giveth. And the Lord taketh away. And He has perfect sovereign rights to do so. And then He says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Bless His name in His giving and in His taking. He is to be praised. Now that's, that's hard stuff. And it is absolutely glorious. And see, you see that we do not accuse God of wrongdoing. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And deep down in our hearts, often we, we do charge Him with wrongdoing. And yet, what we find with the one who has a Christian theodicy is that we understand God is in charge. Now, Job knew that. What Job didn't know was that his life was going to display in a glorious way how good God really is in preserving his own servants. And we'll get to that next time. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your power. And as we grapple with the mystery of evil in our own time, some of which is so grotesque we can hardly even look upon it, that we might understand who you are and might learn to trust you at a deeper level than we ever had before. Please, God, help us to grow even through our sufferings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, gents.